Well, let's pray and ask God to meet us in the word this morning. So good to be back, Father. Thank you for this church family and all the love that's here. And thank you, Lord. It's not that we're a perfect people by any stretch. We're a weak people. We're struggling. We've got needs. But you are full of grace. And we can turn to you no matter what state our hearts are in. And as we look to you, we look to Christ, you welcome us, you love us, you always will help us. Thank you so much. All we need to do is turn to you humbly. And in your grace through Christ, you will meet us. And so we love you for that. And so we turn to you now and ask that you'd come and work through your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be clear and to just be filled with your word and your love by the Spirit. And I pray that you'd use this word to stir each of us, strengthen, encourage, comfort, build up each of us in Christ, I pray. Come and work now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We're going to start there and then end up in Philippians. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand so we can bring one to you. So we're going to do a couple different passages. We're going to start in Luke 2, which is on page 857 in the Bibles we're passing out. We're going to continue through Philippians for the next two weeks, but I want to explain to you how this is is a Christmas series. And then the third Sunday from now, we'll be having a special Christmas sermon going through the Christmas story. But in Luke 2, what we read is that the night that Jesus was born, an angel came to shepherds and told them that through the birth of Jesus, there was good news of great joy for all people. Read verses 8 through 11. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the birth of Jesus means that great joy can be experienced by all people, which means that great joy can be experienced by every single one of us in this room this morning. Good news of great joy for all the people. So what is this joy and how do we experience it? And the next section in Philippians is all about joy, joy in the Lord. And so it fits perfectly into the Christmas story. So with that, let's turn to Philippians chapter 3, and that's on page 981 in the Bibles we passed out. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning, and then the next section on joy, verses 8 and following next Sunday. And again, Christina did a great job last yesterday with the women's brunch about joy, following up on that. And so it's very exciting what Paul teaches us here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So let's start with verse 1. What is this joy? Look at verse 1. Paul says, this is Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Rejoice in the Lord. It's verse 1, the command. So what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? 
What does that mean? Now, the Greek word translated here, rejoice, it has the meaning of, of a, it's, it's a feeling of pleasure and delight in something. For example, the same Greek word is used in Luke chapter 15 to describe a man who is a shepherd uh, who had found his lost sheep. So if you can just kind of put yourself in that mindset, imagine that you're a shepherd and that your livelihood depends upon caring well for your flock. Each individual sheep is extremely valuable, important to you. And imagine the, the grief and a sense of loss and the lament that you'd feel if you'd lost a sheep. And then imagine the pleasure and the delight and the joy you'd feel when you found it. And so here, this Greek word means it's a feeling of pleasure and delight in something, which means that when Paul commands us to rejoice in the Lord, what he's commanding us is to pursue delight, pleasure, joy in the Lord Jesus. That's what he's commanding us to do here. This is huge because one of the biggest questions every human being has to wrestle with is, where am I going to find the pleasure, the delight, the joy that I long for. We all long for pleasure and delight. Everything we do is done to gain pleasure and delight. God's put that into us. So the question we all wrestle with is where do we find that pleasure and delight? And the answer is it is completely found, fully found, only found in Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is can be known, loved, trusted, relied upon, talked with, fellowship with. Jesus Christ is a real personal being. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's fully God. And you can know him. You can walk with him and trust him. He's fully God. He's been in existence from eternity past with no beginning. And you can know him. He's fully God. He has complete authority, sovereign authority over everything that happens in your life and in the universe. And you can know him fully God. Amazing. You can know him. He's all-powerful. The Bible teaches that all things were created through him. And you can know him. And he loves us so much that he was willing to lay aside all the powers and the privileges that he had as God, humble himself, lower himself to become a man. Why? So he could suffer and be punished in our place with the punishment that we deserve. He did that on the cross, paying for our sins, so we could be completely forgiven of all of our sin. Oh, there's good news there. Remember the story of John Bunyan, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian? He had this burden on his back, weighed down with guilt. He looked up, the burden fell off, his heart was free, God's love came upon him. You can experience that. Many of you have experienced that. And Jesus came so that we could be completely forgiven for our sins, washed clean, restored, reconciled. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for us. And we can know him. He's so majestic, he's so beautiful, he's so glorious, he's so real, he's so powerful, he's so wise, he's so sovereign, that when we know him, when we walk with him, when we worship him, when we obey him, when we trust him, we will have times 
that we are so filled with pleasure, so filled with joy, that we won't need anything else. We'll be filled. Do you know him? Do you know him? Now, some of you may doubt that he could do that, that he could fill you that much. So I, I want to share an illustration that I've shared numerous times before. I, I went back and forth about this, prayed about it. I'm going to share this illustration again because this is so powerful about how Jesus can so deeply, really satisfy us. This is from the story of Hudson Taylor, one of the first missionaries to inland China, 1800s. Hudson Taylor, missionary there with his wife. They'd been married for 12 and a half years. And just a few years into the missionary stint, his wife became sick and she died. And he was devastated with grief overwhelmed, huge, heart-aching, painful loss. But at the same time, Jesus Christ met him. The real Jesus. Hudson Taylor knew Jesus. And here's what he wrote in some letters to some of those who were praying for him about how Jesus had met him. He says, Only Jesus knows what her absence is to me, what it means to me. Twelve and a half years of such unbroken spiritual fellowship, united labor, mutual satisfaction and love fall to the lot of very few. But were the loss less, I should know less of his power and sustaining love. No language can express what Jesus has been and is to me. Never does he leave me. Constantly does he cheer me with his love. He who once wept at the grave of Lazarus often now weeps in and with me. Often I find myself wondering whether it is possible for her, who is taken, his wife, who is taken, to have more joy in his presence than he has given me. At times, he does allow me to realize all that was, that is, all that he had in, in, in having his wife alive, all that was but is not now. And then he who will soon come and wipe away every tear, he comes and takes all bitterness from them, from the tears, and fills my heart with deep, true, unutterable gladness. Jesus Christ is a real personal being, fully God, fully man, who you can know. And when you know him, when you trust him, when you worship him, when you rely on him, he will give us that much joy. He'll give you times where you know him so deeply, so closely, you'll have that much joy. So that's what rejoicing in the Lord means. It means seeking your delight, your joy, your pleasure in Jesus Christ. Paul says, finally, my brothers, my sisters, rejoice in the Lord. That's the point of verse 1. But when we keep reading after verse 1, Paul starts talking about circumcision. Why? Why does Paul move in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord, they're talking about circumcision in verses 2 and 3 and following. Some commentators 
think that in verse 1, Paul talks about rejoicing in the Lord. And then verse 2, whole new topic, okay, full stop on the rejoicing in the Lord, new topic, circumcision. But as I read verses 1, 2, and 3, it doesn't sound to me like Paul is moving into a brand new topic. Notice at the end of verse 1, he says that rejoicing in the Lord will help them stay safe. Okay? And then in verse 2, he says, look out for, look out for, look out for. These are the things that he wants them to be kept safe from, protected from. So read verses 1 through 3. I want you to see if you agree that there's no big break between 1 and 2. He's continuing the same topic. Verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision, not them. We are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we're the true circumcision who, in other words, rejoice in the Lord. So there's one topic going through here. Now here's some background about circumcision, just so that we're all clear on what circumcision was. It was the Old Testament sign that somebody was part of God's people. Okay, That's the point of it. It was an outward sign of what God does when he saves someone. So the, the cutting away of flesh and the physical body is a picture of, of God. It's like your heart was covered with, with sin, and when God saved you, he cut away that sin from your heart. Your heart was covered with sin, so you would not worship God. You would not glory in Christ Jesus. You're just boring, dull, nothing, not interested. I mean, pizza, yes, football, yes, sexual pleasure, yes. Jesus, no. Your heart was covered with sin. You couldn't see him. You couldn't feel him. You didn't want to. And God, in great mercy, because of Jesus Christ, he reached down from heaven with his holy scalpel, and he cut away that sin from your heart. He just came down, and, and he did that. And your heart starts beating again in life, and you see Jesus, you say, yes, what have I been doing all my life? You're glorious, I worship you. Because God had circumcised your heart. That's the picture. So it's an outer picture, outer symbol of the heart change that takes place with salvation. So the true meaning of circumcision is not the cutting off of skin from the body. It's the cutting off of sin from our hearts. Now, with the coming of Christ, circumcision was no longer the sign of being part of God's people. Baptism becomes the mark of being part of God's people. So no longer is circumcision an important issue spiritually. But it seems that there were some Jewish evangelists, Jewish evangelists, who weren't weren't trusting Jesus, who'd come into town and they were trying to persuade Paul's readers to seek their salvation and their joy and their delight in the status of being circumcised. And that might sound really strange to you. It's like, like circumcision is going to give you some status like your final kinds of joy in. Well, nobody deals with that today. But we have other things that we that would sound maybe just as foolish to other people that we can try to seek our salvation and our joy in. So this is what they were struggling with. Some Jewish evangelists had come into town trying to persuade his readers to seek their salvation and their joy in the status of being circumcised. So do you see what that would have meant? He commanded them to rejoice in the Lord. Seek your salvation, your joy in the Lord. And these Jewish evangelists are saying, take your eyes off of the Lord Jesus and seek your salvation and your joy in the status of being circumcised. 
It's a huge shift that they were urging Paul's readers to do. And so the reason Paul starts talking about circumcision is because that, in that culture, at that time, that's what they were being tempted to seek their joy and their salvation in other than Jesus Christ. So he's got to deal with it. This is their big temptation that they're facing. You know, why would that be so dangerous for them to start seeking their joy and their salvation in, in circumcision? Why would that be so dangerous? Verse 3 gives the answer. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here Paul's talking about those who are the true circumcision, those who've been saved. Okay, Physical circumcision is not the issue. Spiritual circumcision is the issue. And so what happens when you experience spiritual circumcision, he mentions three things here. You worship by the Spirit of God. Okay, You will have times when, because of the Spirit's work in your heart, he so stirs you that you love Jesus. You extol Jesus. You praise and adore and delight in Jesus because you see him. You're not trying to. It's not because you're supposed to. You are. You're worshiping by the Spirit of God. You'll have times where you experience that. Not only that, they glory in Christ Jesus. Their highest joy, their highest boast, their highest delight is in Jesus Christ. Really. Not not because they're supposed to, but look at him. See him? He's awesome. So they glory in Christ Jesus. As a result of that, they put no confidence in the flesh, which means they don't seek their joy They don't seek their salvation. They don't seek their well-being in anything other than Jesus Christ. They put no confidence in the flesh. They don't seek their joy, their salvation, their well-being in anything other than Jesus Christ. Okay, now, that doesn't mean, I just want to put a little parenthesis here, it doesn't mean that saved people don't experience joy in anything else. Okay? God has created good gifts for us to enjoy. He's made sunsets. He wants you to say, that's beautiful. He's created jalapenos. Okay? He wants you to say, thank you, and taste buds and enjoy them. He's made musical harmony, thanks to the worship team this morning. He's made these things for us to, to give us joy and to give us pleasure. So followers of Jesus will experience joy in many other things, but we don't seek our joy in anything other than Christ. Because what you seek to seek your joy in something means you're seeking to have your heart filled with that. Your heart's empty, you want your heart filled, and you're seeking your joy in, in, in something. Only Jesus will satisfy you. If you seek your joy in jalapenos, eh, I'm sorry. They're good, but they're not that good. Okay, right? You seek your joy in Christ, he will meet you. He will fill you. He will satisfy you. This is who he is. It's what he will do. Somebody's giving an illustration. Let's say, for example, that um, you've had a really rough day, maybe tomorrow at work or whatever with the kids, and and your heart's just empty, frustrated. Now, at that point in time, you want to seek your your joy, your salvation in something. And so, if you let's say you seek it in food, maybe like a bag of chocolate chip cookies. Okay, now nothing wrong with enjoying chocolate chip cookies. Okay, the, the home in Abu Dhabi we stayed at, there's a bag of chocolate chip cookies right on the kitchen counter there. And I, I, enjoy, I definitely enjoyed a few of them. They were very good. But it's another thing when your heart is empty and you are going to seek to satisfy your heart by eating those chocolate chip cookies. 
Let's just say you eat the whole bag of them. Okay, now, what's that going to do for your heart? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, it won't do anything for your heart. Not only that, by seeking your heart's satisfaction in that, you've just made those chocolate chip cookies like a, a, a virtual, uh, like, a, like a, a savior. You've, you've just made that your idol. You've, you've made that your God. See, because whatever you seek to satisfy your heart, that is your God. That is what you're worshiping. Chocolate chip cookies? Absolutely. Entertainment, friends, fame, Money, sexual pleasure, just go on down the list. Those are our idols today, not Baal or Vishnu or whatever, but but those are the things that we worship today because whatever you seek to satisfy your heart is what you're worshiping. It's what you love. We're commanded to love what with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? God. You love Him. You seek Him. You know Him because it's in His presence, Psalm 1611, that Aaron's just quoted to us at Home Group Wednesday night. It's in his presence that there's fullness of joy. It's at his right hand there are pleasures forever. Okay? So when you seek anything else as your heart satisfaction, as your salvation, you're making that your you're making it your God. Functional Savior. It's an idol. It's your it's your God. And that's what Paul's readers were being tempted to do with circumcision. They were being tempted to seek their joy and their salvation in the status of being circumcised. So they could be proud, we're circumcised, they're not. That's going to make me really feel strong and like spiritual and like God owes me now. And anyway, it's just, it's a, it's a false teaching. Okay, so can you see why this is so dangerous then? This is the question we're asking. According to verse 3, saved people seek their joy and their salvation where? In Christ. Saved people Worship Christ, boast in Christ, seek their joy and salvation in Christ, not in circumcision, not in chocolate chip cookies, in Christ alone. So what's at stake here, the reason Paul uses such strong language in verse 2, beware of these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh, beware of them. It's because salvation's at stake here. Huge issue. If they've been saved, they will seek their joy, their salvation in Christ alone, not in circumcision. If we've been saved, we will seek our joy, our salvation in Christ alone, not in anything else. So the stakes are high. And so Paul brings out some big guns here to persuade them not to pursue the circumcision route. How does Paul persuade them? to keep seeking their joy and salvation in the Lord. Look at what he says in verses 3 through 8. This is so powerful. Paul is just brilliant. I mean, this is the Holy Spirit leading him to write these. This is, oh, those poor Jewish evangelists. They just didn't have a chance, okay? Verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else, Jewish evangelists, think he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay, so these Jewish evangelists were trying to persuade Paul's readers that their joy and salvation would be found in taking on Jewish distinctives, like being circumcised. 
take on these Jewish distinctives, the status of them, man, you'll be joy, salvation, be right with God, heart will be full, it'll all be together. But Paul, see, has more Jewish distinctives than any of those Jewish evangelists. And so he lists his pedigree here. It's like Paul's resume, okay? Circumcised on the eighth day, exactly as the Old Testament commanded. Of the people of Israel. So he was born as, a, as an Israelite. Not only that, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Whoa! Okay, now, that's a, that's a whoa because the area of Benjamin's land was right where Jerusalem was located. The tribe of Benjamin. Ooh, man, that, that's some pedigree there. Okay, a Hebrew of Hebrews, which might have meant that he was born of Hebrew parents or maybe that he was brought up to speak the Hebrew language. Commentators aren't sure, but either way, it was, whoa, if you understood, you'd be going, whoa, okay? Hello? Whoa, Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, okay, the most strict group. Not only did they think they were obeying the Old Testament law perfectly, but they, just to make sure they added a whole bunch, like hundreds of other commands, just to make sure they didn't even get close to disobeying the Old Testament, the Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So Paul was well known in Jewish circles as a, as a man who arrested Christians, threw them in prison. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So when it comes to the Pharisees, distorted understanding of the law is just you know all these outward things paul had all those outward things down cold blameless sinless he was a sinless quote-unquote sinless pharisee okay so he had all the pedigree has all the jewish distinctives you want to talk jewish distinctives you want to go there he says to these jewish evangelists you really want to go there let's go there Boom, 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 boom. Then he says in verses 7 and 8, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. That's all nothing for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul says, Pile up over here all the things the world counts as gain. Jewish pedigree, just list them all. Boom, boom, boom. Just pile it all up. Fame, money, comforts, er- earthly pleasures. Just pile it. Keep going. More. Pile, everyone, pile it. Just get the whole pile here. Okay. So here's the whole pile of, of, of earthly stuff. Okay. And then over here is Jesus Christ. All the earthly gain. And over here is Jesus Christ. The joy, Paul says, the joy of knowing Christ is such a gain that it's not just like number one and that's number two. The joy of knowing Christ is such a gain that that's all loss. When you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your friend, as your God, as your strength, as your refuge, as your guide, as your hope. When you know Jesus Christ, the joy, the strength, the hope, the comfort, the forgiveness, the reconciliation, the future, gain, loss. Verse 8, he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord.
It's not that Christians are supposed to turn away from all of these wonderful things and supposed to settle for Christ down here. No. Where's the surpassing worth? Not there. The surpassing worth is here because Christ is the surpassing worth. When you know him, Savior, friend, guide, such a gain that everything else is lost in comparison. So what does this mean for us? Okay, second Sunday of the Advent season. The angel said to the shepherds that they bring good news of great joy for all the people. And that great joy is found in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross so that we could be completely forgiven, don't need to face God's judgment anymore. God's mercy and grace are pouring down upon all who are trusting Christ. So we're forgiven, we're reconciled to God, and then he brings his presence into our lives by the Holy Spirit, and so we can have joy, pleasure, delight, worship, boasting in him. So here's one takeaway. I want you to do this for the next Christmas season. Let me call you to this, okay? Every day. Some of you maybe already do this. Some of you maybe don't. Some of you maybe need to refocus what this is all about. But every day, take some time where you put everything else aside and your whole focus is to nurture love for Jesus Christ. Your whole goal is to rejoice in the Lord. And so you you open up the scriptures and you pray Help me. Bring the power of your spirit upon me. Maybe put on some worship music. And with worship and with prayer and with the word, you, you, you seek God's face. Say, pour out your joy upon me. And you, you nurture joy in the Lord. And when you do, God will give you times when he pours his love into your heart. God will give you times where he shows you Jesus' glory. You'll see You are glorious. He'll give you times where he pours into your thirsty heart the the living water of the Holy Spirit. You're satisfied. And you will be right in sync with what the angels told the shepherd. Good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So let's do that for for the rest of this Christmas season. Every day, Morning, noon, night, whenever it works best for you, where you set, put everything else aside, you set your heart to seek the Lord, to know the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord, to worship the Lord, and watch what the Lord does. Okay, so what questions does this raise? Am I, am I in sync with the passage? Rejoicing in the Lord and circumcision and how those go together? Why, those are, why, why Paul links those together? What questions does this raise? Sean's got a question. Up here, Chuck, thanks. Good things, 
but at times things that distract me from the loveliness of God or apologetics. You know, I, I think of other things that maybe some other people have, you know, focused on, such as end times, denominational distinctives or lack thereof, uh, or uh, even things like evangelism and homeschool, where we can focus so much on these things where we lose sight of our Savior, where we lose mm-hmm. the fact that He's the one that we should be worshiping, and we may be spending so much time, in essence, almost making idols out of these things rather than worshiping God. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's helpful for anyone else, but I, I just, I don't know, I, I th- thought that the, the picture in Revelations of lukewarm Christians that are neither hot or cold came to mind when we can do good things, you know, that aren't frowned upon as, you know, sins, but right. at the very same time can become Christianized idols. That's a good, really good point. I mean, uh, I would encourage you all to ask the question, I mean, what is it that you really, like this last week, have experienced the most joy in? And, and if, it, if the answer is, well, I debated this person about post-trib tribulation, and I think I won. Okay, if, that, if that's like, then there's a problem. It's a big problem, right? And, and so there can be Christianese things, I mean, Christian, good things, good Christian things can, uh, if, I mean, Satan will, he, he's the deceiver, and he will love to deceive us about good things and make them into gods in our lives, which is wrong. So, good. Take take to heart what Sean was saying. Chuck. Follow up. Uh, yeah. Corinthians 13, the love passage. Yes. Don't, you know, don't rest on prophecy. Don't be a crying symbol, but love. Love. Good. Thanks, brother. Other questions or comments? Jerry. Yes. But he takes us into perhaps a wilderness yes. in our own lives to show us what our priorities are. Yes. Is our priority finding our joy in Jesus or is it in getting one up on somebody? Yes. 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 You know, on and on and on. Yes. I think it's it's really important to look at your heart and say, where, where am I? Yes. Yes. A personal savior or not? Yes. Boy, thank you, Jerry. Take that to heart. Look at your heart. Is he your personal savior or not? Well said. It's so important. What else? Going, going, going. Okay, so take time every day. Reset everything else aside. And it's you and the Father. Through the Son, by the Spirit. And you're there and you're seeking him. Prayer, the Word, worship, you're at the you know, kneeling at the manger. You're before the Lord. Do that, and you'll be right in sync with what Christmas is all about. Okay, let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. I pray, Lord, that you'd be showing us the things that compete with you for our affections for our joys. We know we are to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because you are 
worthy of being loved with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and nothing else is. But forgive us, it's just so easy, Lord, with our, our remaining sin to be drawn aside, astray from you, and to turn from you to other things. We all struggle with this. And you are full of mercy through Christ. I praise you that we can turn back to you just as we are and say, I'm being drawn away to food, to money, to fame, to arguing theology, to whatever it might be. Help me, forgive me, change me. And you will because of Jesus. So thank you that we can turn and come to you as we are and you run towards us with love and mercy and all the help we need. And I pray, Lord, for each of us that this week you'd give us rich time where we are setting our hearts upon you, opening up the word, studying your word, meditating on your word, worshiping you as we see you revealed in the scriptures. Meet us there, Lord, I pray. Encourage us. Free us, satisfy us for your glory in Christ. I pray that you would do this. And the Lord, for anyone here who has never met you, who is still looking for their joy, their salvation, their pleasure in other things, I pray, Lord God, that today they would own up to the reality of who you are, the beauty of who you are, the love that you are, and that they would be saved by trusting Christ alone. Do that in them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.